Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today our guest is Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. She's the Democrat from Seattle who is the co-chair of the House Progressive Caucus. Like many people, she's frustrated with how the Paycheck Protection Plan rolled out, how a lot of big publicly traded companies sucked up all the cash coming out of Washington, leaving little for real small businesses and individuals. She'll explain how her new plan would get money directly to people who are unemployed because it wouldn't involve going through banks. We'll talk about the presidential campaign, too. Remember, she was a top Bernie Sanders supporter. She'll explain how Bernie is trying to get progressives psyched up to vote for Biden. It won't be easy, as we know. And she talks about her frustrations with a powerful company located in her district, Amazon. And now... Here's my conversation with Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, welcome from your home in Seattle to my home in Oakland. Welcome back to It's All Political. Thank you, Joe. It's so great to be with you again, Um, though last time I think we got to do it in person. So this time we're physically distanced. (laughs) We are are appropriately physically distanced here, much more than six feet. Uh, First of all, family, everybody doing okay? Everybody's healthy? Everyone is. Thank you so much for asking. And, you know, I always start with gratitude to the folks who are on the front lines and and, uh, tremendous, um, you know, thoughts out to everyone who's suffering right now, whether it's people who have lost members or people who are anxious, worried, um, economically devastated. There is so much of that around. So I'm grateful that all is good in our home. Good, good to hear. All right, let's let's talk about the bad news. Uh, the unemployment rate, fourteen, almost fifteen percent. Uh, even even the president's economic advisors say that uh, expected to climb to twenty percent in for the next uh, month or two. The Paycheck Protection Program has been a mess in many ways. Uh, loans went to hundreds of large corporations that had access to capital instead of small businesses that didn't. And the Small Business Association. Uh, administration, I'm sorry, did not prioritize. It was supposed to businesses owned by women and people of color. Uh, they should have gotten more loans than they did. This week, uh, Democrats are going to release their idea for a new round of coronavirus relief. And you are leading the charge on part of it that will that you hope will fix some of the problems that were in the PPP. It is called, your proposal is called the Paycheck Guarantee Act. Explain to us what that is and uh, who, who would get it and how much would they get? Yeah, thanks so much for that um, question. I think we have to start with what the goal is. You mentioned the unemployment uh, numbers, and I will tell you that 15% is the official unemployment rate. However, most economists estimate that we're somewhere between 22 and 25% um, in terms of real unemployment because so many people have not been able to file for unemployment insurance yet. The systems are overwhelmed. Plus, we have a lot of workers who are not looking for work and therefore, or they're underemployed and they're not counted in that official rate. So when you think about this, whether it's 15% or whether it's 22 to 25%, this is these are stunning numbers. We haven't been at this level of unemployment since the Great Depression. And the racial disparities are significant. You know, some people are calling this a she session because um, the unemployment rate for women, um, and this is particularly sad because we had finally eliminated some of the disparities in 
um, unemployment for women in December. And now the unemployment rate for women is um, is up substantially. 55% of people who have been laid off or, or furloughed are women. And then, of course, disproportionately for black workers, 17%, 19% Latino workers, um, 14.5% for Asian American workers, we think those are all underreported. So the I say all of that to say that our our belief is that mass unemployment at this kind of scale is a policy choice, and it's a bad one. Um, most countries around the world have met these kinds of uh, you know economic devastation times with a paycheck guarantee, and I'm going to tell you exactly what that is. But it's not just. Germany, Denmark, France, some of the European countries that we often think of as leading the way on smart fiscal policy and smart um, sort of human policy. But it's also Singapore, South Korea, Malaysia have all implemented a version of paycheck guarantee. So the goal is to end mass layoffs, to keep workers in their jobs and tied to their employers and therefore also their benefits like health care and to prevent employers from being forced to close permanently. The way it would work is that um, the Paycheck Guarantee Act would allow businesses of all sizes, so there's no picking winners and losers, there's no hunger games between one small business competing with you know another business that has a banking relationship and one doesn't, and so you don't get you know uh, uh, the amount... But this would be for all businesses of all sizes, um, nonprofits, and state and local governments that experience at least a 10% loss in revenue due to COVID. What would happen is the business or the entity would file a form with the IRS, which they already file quarterly IRS filings, and they would say, this is the percentage of our revenue loss um, that we have had. And then the IRS would calculate a grant amount for three months of that revenue loss times payroll and benefits for salaries up to $90,000. And um, that amount then plus 25% operating expenses for businesses, because we know it's not just about payroll. Businesses have to cover rent, utilities, other fixed costs. That total amount gets sent directly from the IRS to the entity. No banks, no third party, no picking winners and losers, as I said. Um, It gets support to workers and employers as quickly as possible. And it is retroactive to March 1st so that employers can rehire people that were recently laid off and furloughed. That will immediately drop the unemployment rate substantially. But I think the important thing about this, a couple important things about this proposal First of all, it is both an economic recovery plan and a public health plan because job number one is to beat the virus. If we are to beat the virus, then we need people to stay home and actually pay attention to the scientists and the public health people and the doctors who tell us when we have enough testing, contact tracing, and isolation capability in place. If we want people to stay home, then we really need to relieve the economic pressure that is starting to happen as businesses see, you know, their life savings go down the tube and um, workers are unable to put food on the table or pay their rent or mortgage. So this is, I think, allows people to pay attention and prioritize public health guidance 
over economic necessity and not make them a trade-off because I really don't think they're a trade-off. Secondly, by not using um, banks and third-party lenders going directly to businesses, you keep that relationship, which also helps provide certainty to the worker so that they know they're getting a paycheck. They know they're going to continue to get a paycheck, at least for a certain amount of time. Our proposal has an economic trigger built in. So it continues until unemployment reaches 7% for three months straight. That certainty is really important to the psyche of a consumer. Um, You may not spend the way you did before, but if you know you're getting a paycheck every month and you know you're going to be back at work, at least for some period of time, uh, you're going to have a job, you may buy the car that you really need. You may, you know, maybe a cheaper car than you would have bought otherwise. You may... Um, you may invest in, you know, fixing your roof or whatever that was really essential that you were about to do when this pandemic hit. And you certainly might go out and get some takeout from a restaurant, even if you can't um, eat out the way you used to eat out. So consumer spending really gets helped with this. And you save tremendously from not pushing people onto unemployment insurance, um, not pushing people onto Medicaid and not paying for very expensive COBRA subsidies, which is one of the alternatives to doing this. Now, we can talk about other ways that I would deal with healthcare, but you know I've been a Medicare for all person. But the middle of a global pandemic is not the time to kick 35 million people off of their uh, healthcare. And so this is at least let's keep it for now. And then let's, you know, I'm still working towards getting healthcare so that it's not tied to a job. I mean, this has really showed us how ridiculous of an idea that is. But, you know, that's going to take time to implement. So this is a pragmatic solution. It's pro-business, it's pro-worker, and it's pro-economy. What? How much would this cost in total and how would we pay for this? Yeah. So the really great thing about the cost is it is actually probably the most cost-effective proposal that is out there um, because of the savings that you get from not pushing people onto the other systems. I'm very proud of the expanded uh, unemployment insurance that we passed, and we should continue to keep that going. Um, However, if you pass this, you don't send people onto unemployment insurance. So the overall cost with those savings, um, assuming you don't push people onto unemployment, Medicaid, plus the additional state and local taxes that governments will continue to get, plus the health care that you don't now have to cover, um, is about $650 billion for six months. And that would, cover, uh, that would cover 36 million workers. By contrast, the PPP um, cost more than that in two tranches, and we are not seeing any reduction in employment roles. So it's a very affordable program. And I would just say every economist I've spoken to, this proposal has been endorsed by former Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen, by uh, the chief economist at Moody's has been working very closely with me, Mark Zandi, um, Joseph Stieglitz, Nobel Prize winning economist. They've all endorsed this proposal along with labor leaders and groups across the country, Main Street Alliance, which represents all the small business, you know, a a massive group of small business owners. Um, And it's because everyone understands that these are exigent circumstances. This is a crisis. 
The more we wait and allow unemployment to rack up, the harder it is for us to get out of that downward spiral and the more our economy tanks and the more it eventually costs us as well. How do you make sure that people aren't gaming the system here? Is it, is it the fact that it would be available to everybody? And, and, but as there, there's always some way to game the system. What are the safeguards to that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And we're seeing it with the PPP program. We're seeing it with, um, you know, a whole bunch of other things. Um, And so what we have done is because it's administered through the IRS, there's an automatic audit function. We compare what you're asking for to your um, 2019 uh, um, tax filings, quarterly tax filings. So on the front end, we know that this is what your payroll was last year, um, same quarter. And so you can't tell us that all of a sudden you need double or triple that. Um, Secondly, we also have the audit function of the IRS because you have to file quarterly tax filings and every business or nonprofit has to do that, whether or not they pay taxes. The IRS can see what you have now done. Who did you have on payroll? And they can make the adjustment for the continuation of the program. I told you it was a three-month initial upfront grant, but then every month, you you give a new application, a new statement of how much your revenue loss has gone down so the amount can be calculated. That is an opportunity to adjust. And in the bill, we put significant money back into the IRS, both for implementation and for, um, and for uh, fraud. There are serious fraud penalties built into our program as well. And I just have to say, there are some proposals out there that are covering $16 million through something called the employee retention tax credit. We think that's a fine delivery mechanism, but the the goal here has to be to cover as many workers as possible. Otherwise, it's like half a loaf that doesn't do anything. And you are working with, well, in some way, you're working with the Republican Senator, Josh Hawley from uh, Missouri, who is something similar. He he would cover about 80% of of people's salaries. Um, Is that, uh, how how are you going to get this through Republican Senate? Well, interestingly, you know, Josh Hawley and I rolled out our um, uh, proposals at the same time. He did it with an op-ed. I did it with a fairly detailed white paper, which we've continued to update. Our staffs have been talking, and I think that the concept has wide bipartisan support. Um, There's a very similar proposal by Senate Dems to my proposal, um, Mark Warner, Bernie Sanders, um, Doug Jones, and Pete Blumenthal that they introduced a couple weeks after mine, and we sent them all our stuff for them to look at. Um, and so I do think that this is something that um, Republicans also, you know, for different reasons, don't want to send people to unemployment insurance. And I think that, you know, the idea of keeping employers and workers, that productive labor market relationship going is a very pro-business, very Republican-friendly argument. And I think that you see it with the airline package that we passed. That was the same idea, but it was specific to the airline package, had very specific conditions around stock buybacks. And these are some of the other things, to your point of how do people not game the system. You know, we prohibit stock buybacks and executive CEO pay increases, those kinds of things. Um, So I do think that there's a lot of bipartisan support. The question, though, has to be, how do we make it as expansive as possible? And then what you can do, Joe, is if you can cover as many people as possible with paychecks, then you can target some of the other things we need to do 
like stimulus checks and mortgage relief and rent relief, which is so necessary in places like San Francisco, Seattle, but across the country, um, you can target that to the people who need it the most. And that is, you know, people on the, the lower ends of the spectrum. And so that also becomes a very, very thoughtful, strategic and targeted way to get money directly to the people who need it the most. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Pramila Jayapal after this short break. Here's more of my conversation with Pramila Jayapal. And this will be a lot of other things in this democratic package that's coming out. Uh, we should maybe we may know about it uh, more about it uh, hours after we record this. But uh, one thing that I heard was coming it was going to be broadband. Um, it, one proposal I heard was $80 billion for broadband. And now in many big cities, uh, like where you represent and where I live, uh, people are like, well, broadband, we're, we're good. We're all wired here. But uh, 40% of low-income households in, in, uh, lack uh, internet access or a computer in the Bay Area. In Oakland, the public schools here, half the students weren't even online or were, quote, under-connected to the web. And, you know, that will only exacerbate the... Um, the gap in the uh, education achievement gap and uh, reflective of the wealth disparity gap, et cetera, et cetera. What um, are you doing about broadband uh, in this bill and uh, what could we expect to see? Well, I don't know what will be in this bill. None of us do actually. We're waiting to see. I mean, each of us has heard a few different things about, you know, what might be in the bill. Um, Obviously broadband, you know, I think what this pandemic has done is exposed much of what we knew to be true about where the gaps were. And we certainly knew that rural America, um, you know, some of the less urban places, but also in urban places, what the disparities are around access to broadband um, and access to the internet in terms of cost, even if you have, you know, the, the, the actual um, uh, basic infrastructure there, um, and and when you're in a place where you're using Zoom all the time or you're using the Internet because you can't go in to do your work, it's really exposing those divides. So there's no question in my mind that investing in broadband is absolutely critical and that we should do a targeted assessment, particularly for rural areas um, and communities of color that have far less access to both the technology and to the infrastructure. So I hope that's in the bill. I don't know if it is or not, but I know it is an important priority for us for an infrastructure package, which should absolutely be part of recovery. We are not at recovery yet. We're still at relief. And, you know, the fact that we have water systems across the country that don't allow people to have water, um, clean water, is a problem when you're asking people to wash their hands in order to beat the virus. So I think many of those gaps are being illuminated, um, and certainly that's true of healthcare as well. And, of course, the, the Republicans are saying that this is nothing more, that the Democratic package as it's coming together will be nothing more than a wish, liberal wish list, uh, and it won't see, it'll be very difficult to get through the Senate and certainly by the president. What, what can you do about that? What to do? How do you respond to that? And, and what are your, how do you get something like this through? Well, I would say that I don't think I'm hearing that consistently across, for example, Republican governors of states. There are many Republican governors 
who have been urgent in their need for us to spend more and to help um, rectify, you know, the the situation that they're facing in their states. Um, there are many conservative uh, and and you know right leaning economists, and I wouldn't say that Mark Zandi, who's the chief economist at Moody's, is a left leaning liberal. Um, no. He is a very respected economist who has been, I mean, I've been talking to Mark almost every day now for the last, you know, couple, several weeks, um, been on several conference calls with him um, about my legislation. And I will tell you, his words are, we have to be extremely aggressive and we have to address this at the scale that this crisis demands, because the longer we wait, the more uh, difficult it will be to pull us out. And so he is working, I think, now, um, you know, he has done all the costing for me. He has estimated both the cost and the savings um, because I really wanted to have somebody who was respected on both sides of the aisle that understands the economy and is looking at the long-term consequences as well as the short-term needs that we have. We uh, we spoke a couple of weeks ago for a story I did in the Chronicle about Medicare for All, perhaps the pandemic, what it is uh, highlighting the shortcomings and failures of our current health system, this might be a moment for Medicare for All uh, to gain more supporters. And um, uh, sort of alluded to this earlier, it might be a a tough time to get this through now to to boot uh, people off of their current health care. But you and Katie Porter, Congresswoman from Orange County, Democratic Congresswoman, were recently talking to uh, uh, candidates, Democratic candidates for the House, and, and Many were curious about how to talk about Medicare for All now, uh, and you're, you were helping them out on that. Where do you see Medicare for All fitting into, if not the current legislation, but the campaign as, as people are, are looking towards November now? Well, I think what's been amazing about this moment is, once again, it has highlighted how um, what a failure our current healthcare system is. And what a mistake it is to tie healthcare and access to affordable prescription drugs to employment. Um, anybody that you know was making the argument that employer-based healthcare provided uh, incredible choices, I would make the argument all the time before the pandemic that what choice do you have when you lose your job? But it didn't seem as real for people. Now, 35 million Americans are are estimated projected to lose their healthcare when they lose their job. So it is no longer theoretical. And all of a sudden, we are seeing support for Medicare for All go through the roof. 90% of Democrats now support Medicare for All. 67% of independents support Medicare for All. 68% of Americans across the political spectrum support Medicare for All. And so I think that is a really important uh, moment for us. And I take hope from New Orleans who just this week passed a resolution supporting Medicare for All, because amidst a pandemic, that community sees what we all see, which is that healthcare is a right and should not be tied to employment, and that we need to, you know, be able to um, to to address the immediate crisis, but we need to use that to come out of this structurally stronger. And that's why I've also introduced. I mean, I am obviously, you know, saying we should keep people on employer health care through the Paycheck Guarantee. But then I've also introduced a Medicare Crisis Program Act that um, is, you know, is addressing 
the people who are still left without health care, even if we were to pass the PGA, um, we estimate that there will still be a number of people on uh, uh, unemployment and on uh, people who are uninsured. So the Medicare crisis program would expand Medicare for people who are unemployed and would um, expand Medicaid for people who are uninsured so that every American would have health care during this pandemic. And then it would also cap out-of-pocket costs for Medicare enrollees and eliminate co-pays, co-insurance, or deductibles for anything that is COVID-related. Um, I have another proposal with Senator Sanders that would uh, essentially just cover all the health care costs for Americans during this crisis um, through Medicare. Either of these ideas, I think, are getting us to the place that we really should be at, which is Medicare for all. And so we're continuing to push that. As you said, we have a lot of candidates running for um, the House, including in very swing districts, who are uh, very anxious to address the health care crisis that people are feeling as they're starting to get even surprise bills for COVID-related testing. And just one last point on this. I, you know, I saw a Gallup poll the other day that it shouldn't have stunned me given everything I've done on healthcare, but it still did stun me. It said that one in seven Americans would not seek healthcare, um, even if they had COVID related symptoms because they were afraid of costs. Just imagine what that does for our ability to control the virus. So even if you don't agree with us that healthcare is a human right, what you should agree with from a very selfish perspective is that every single person, regardless of citizenship, regardless of any kind of status, um, disability, whatever it is, should have testing and treatment um, for COVID-19 covered because that's essential to controlling the virus for everyone else. All right, let's talk about the presidential campaign a little bit. You, uh, of course, were a supporter of Bernie Sanders, um, and you recently endorsed Joe Biden a little late. It was in late April. <laughs> but uh, I just wrote my column the other day about some research that was done about young progressives in, battles, uh, in battleground states. It was done by Next Gen America, Tom Steyer's group. They said the this, this things they were saying about Joe Biden <clears throat> were not pretty. They said he was, quote, a dated option who, quote, caters to the ultra-wealthy and represents the stagnation of American politics. Others say they are absolutely disgusted about the sexual allegations against him, uh, end quote. How concerned are you about the, the, the lack of enthusiasm for Joe Biden? Well, I think everybody should be concerned. I mean, this is the most important election in our life, and we say that every single time, but this time it's really true, and it's happening in the midst of a pandemic that is causing devastation not only to economics and, and health, but also to our voting systems. So this is really, really important. And it will require work to be done on all fronts. We need to help Joe Biden establish policy proposals that he really believes in and is convinced about, but that also excite people to believe that government can make a real difference in their lives. And he needs to show that he's willing to take on some of the very serious issues in our economy healthcare, with our uh, climate crisis. And, and that's what, you know, the task forces that Sanders and Biden have, uh, have established and are about to announce um, are about. Can we get to some policy positions that authentically Joe Biden can feel good about and that we also 
can feel good about in terms of moving the agenda to really address the needs that people have. And so, you know, we also then need to go out and we need to help young people and immigrants to feel hope because they will vote if they feel hope, if they feel genuinely listened to, not talked down to, not told that they're too idealistic um, and, and, you know, that they, that they can't get everything they want. I mean, these young folks that I talk to, they're not single issue voters. They're extremely smart about what their future does or doesn't hold. And they want to be listened to and they want to feel like there's somebody that's going to have their back. So my commitment is to help in every way possible on both of those fronts, both in terms of shaping the policies so that they are, you know, addressing real issues and excite hope in people and also then helping young people and immigrants in particular, you know, categories that Biden has not been successful with so far to um, to to recognize how important their votes are. I don't think they're going to vote for Trump. That's not the issue. But the issue is we don't want them to stay home. And I do believe that the vice president, I had a 50 minute conversation with him before I endorsed him um, because I really wanted to see what was in his heart. Well, how did he you know, how did he think about some of these things? And I will just tell you that you know, I was encouraged by what I heard, but we have we have work to do to really make sure we get we get there. And we'll be, you know, I'll be right by his side, but I'll also be pushing him sometimes. And maybe sometimes I'll be out in front because I think that that is what this moment requires. And I am all in um, because no progress can be had with Donald Trump in the White House. Nothing, nothing we want to do can progress with Donald Trump in the White House. And worse than that, he is, you know, he has wreaked um, a, a political, economic and psychic devastation across this country that it will take us a long time to recover from, even with a Democrat as president. I want to ask you about the accusations by Tara Reid. Where are you on those and how has the vice president handled it and what should happen next? Well, I think that, you know, at, at the top line here is that my belief, and I've been very consistent about this, including with Democratic members like John Conyers, who was a was a hero on the civil rights front for me. Um, when survivors of sexual assault and sexual harassment came forward uh, then and now, whenever they come forward to speak their truth, they need to be heard and the allegations have to be taken seriously. And so ending sexual assault, sexual harassment, and abuses of power is just core to the work of social justice. And I am deeply committed to that. And so I have watched as additional details have come to light about Ms. Reed's allegations. And I really believe that um, Joe Biden should call for a full investigation of these allegations by all relevant authorities and the media. And I just think they have to be investigated um, not only from a political perspective do I believe that Joe Biden shouldn't have that hanging over his head, but I think that um, women are a key part of the electorate. I think we all understand what the Me Too movement was about, and um, and I think that that is something that um, honestly will benefit you know, Joe Biden, will make him consistent with some of the things he's talked about around his work around violence against women, um, and his leadership in that area, um, I just think it's the right thing to do. And that's that's a little bit short that what Biden himself has called for. He's not called for a full investigation of it. Um, 
want to talk to you about one before I let you go. Want to talk to you about one of your constituents up in uh, Seattle, and that is Amazon. You have concerns about the company. Uh, you feel that, of course, it's uh, providing a central service for work for all of us here, um, and uh, but it's not treating its workers well. What What do you want from Amazon, and, and what are you trying to do to get it done? Well, this has been a long conversation with Amazon. You know, I'm in my um, I'm in my fourth year now in Congress, and I have tried very hard to build a relationship with Amazon because unlike a lot of other um, Democratic, liberal, uh, you know, House representatives and senators who criticize Amazon, I actually have them in, you know, their headquarters are right here. They were born in Seattle. Um, and they're constituents, yeah. They're constituents, and, and Amazon, as an employer, most of the, um, you know, a, a lot of my constituents work for Amazon, let me put it that way. And so, right, right. And so both the business, its headquarters are here as, as a constituent, but also the people that work here as constituents. And so I have tried to engage with the company privately, um, had a number of meetings. My staff has had a number of meetings and, and outreach with, with my concerns, but um, it just got to a level where um, I felt I needed to really uh, call out the issues that I see publicly. And so Several weeks ago, I sent a detailed letter to Amazon um, around sort of four key areas that mainly had to do with um, worker rights, worker safety, um, worker treatment around paid sick leave, those kinds of things, um, and retaliation, um, you know, against employees who speak out about safety issues and are then fired, one of whom I have had numerous conversations with, Marin Costa. Um, who was recently fired. And you may know that a vice president, Tim Bray, um, recently resigned um, and used a word to describe uh, Amazon's behavior towards these workers who were trying to raise issues and concerns that, that were entirely inappropriate. And he, he resigned um, as a result of that. And I've spoken to him since that resignation. So what I want is, number one, I want Amazon to respect their workers, I, I have said two things can be true. A company can be doing very essential work, which I believe that Amazon is. It is a crucial part of our pandemic response with its delivery mechanisms to get stuff to people. They've been doing a lot of other work with our state government and the federal government um, to get necessary supplies to people. They can be doing essential work and they can be not treating workers well. You can hold those two things together, and I think it's important that we do. Um, and then secondly, you know, they have made enormous amounts of money from this crisis. Share prices have gone up substantially. Of course, Jeff Bezos is already the richest man in the world, um, and he has continued to get richer. And so it is even more important that they show the moral leadership of how a big, profitable company who is making money in the midst of this pandemic and fundamentally reorienting the marketplace so that they will benefit um, at, at the end of this. And they can really lead the way in showing what it looks like to be generous to workers, to allow workers to organize um, at the workplace, to allow workers to stay home if, and have paid leave if they have COVID-related symptoms, to make sure that workers over 65 and you know who have chronic health conditions are paid to stay home so that they're not coming to work in the midst of a pandemic like this. So those are the kinds of things that I would like to see Amazon take leadership on and I'm calling for them to do. 
Um, and then I'm also- Is there any push in Congress to, to make them do that, to do some arm twisting to, because they're going to need some incentive given how, they, how they powerful- are. I really think the government should be, um, should be mandating some of these things. You know, paid leave, we passed uh, a paid leave policy, but it got really undermined in the first CARES package to not include large corporations and to sort of say, oh, well, they're going to do it on their own. Well, they don't. I think, you know, it's not fair. Some do, actually. And some companies have been doing a really great job. Microsoft almost immediately announced that they were paying their hourly workers even as they're sending them home because they recognize those are at the bottom of the scale. So Amazon should be leading the way on this and doing much more than we would even want them to do. This is a great opportunity for them from a PR perspective, if not from a human, humanistic perspective. In addition, the antitrust committee, um, I have called for Jeff Bezos to come and testify to us. I am very concerned about the discrepancy between um, statements made under oath in response to my questioning on the antitrust committee by um, the associate uh, general counsel, and then a Wall Street Journal report, not a New York Times, not some liberal publication, but a Wall Street Journal report about employees who directly contradicted what he said to me under oath. And so um, we are exploring the options around that, but we certainly, uh, with Chairman Nadler, with David Cicilline, and with a couple of Republicans across the aisle, a bipartisan call for, Joe, uh, for Jeff Bezos to come and testify before us. Okay, we will look forward to that. Congresswoman, thank you so much uh, for returning to It's All Political, and we look to uh, having you on again in person, uh, you know, within six feet. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you. I'd like to thank you all for listening, and I hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Congresswoman for being here today, and I'd like to thank Karen Creighton for producing today's episode. And remember, no matter whether you always shop locally or there's an Amazon truck parked in front of your house right now, it's all political. It's All Political is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Our executive editor is Audrey Cooper. Our theme music, our wonderful theme music that I love, it gets me jazzed up, is Cattle Call, written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Croson. Support It's All Political and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for a Chronicle membership. It's very easy. You just go to sfchronicle.com slash pod.